This is the Busted Business Bureau. I am your host, Christian Borky. As always, this podcast is produced by the Lincoln Lodge. If you haven't given the Lincoln Lodge all of your money, now is the time to do so. Donate to the Lincoln Lodge, all that good stuff. Uh, I am back again with a returning guest. It is Sarah. Hello. You may have seen her on the Schwann's Frozen Pizza episode of the podcast. If you haven't listened to that, you should check that out now. Uh, also, I have a Patreon now that people donate to, which is pretty freaking nuts. I got my first Patreon payment the other day on Bobby Bonilla Day, uh, which was sick. So if you want to donate to that, it's Busted Biz Bureau. That's also on my social medias. Blah, blah, blah. Let's do the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about musicals. And Sarah has a BFA. I don't. And we're going to be talking about, like, a spectacular falling out of a musical. How the internet canceled <laughs> one of the best musicals written in the last fucking century, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. Sarah, uh, how are you feeling? I am feeling very excited to talk about musicals. But before we do, this is your, what, 16th podcast Yeah, something episode? like that. Okay, so I have some questions for you before we get started. The tables have fucking turned. Oh my god, you are taking the reins on this one. Yeah, no, I came prepared with a list. I <laughs> <laughs> I really want to know, um, what was the hardest episode so far that you have had to research? Oh, hard is in difficult content or hard is in like the actual information was difficult to secure or difficult to put into a story that's totally up to you how you i guess it is question. a question not an assignment and uh-huh. i'm treating it like it's one i think the shot spotter one was really hard to put together into a cohesive narrative cuz all that stuff's just like out there and so putting a story together was kind of hard uh, but in terms of like how hard i put my pussy into the research i would say the io episode was really up there cuz like i read fucking books about comedy <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. That was a good one. You spent hours and hours on that episode. Yeah, because that's when I was fun employed, and so I had a lot uh-huh. of time to read a lot of books. Totally. Yeah. yeah. No, that makes sense. Okay, and then I happen to know that you take each of your guests to brunch before recording <laughs> the podcast as a little thank you. Um, this is so cute. <laughs> what is your favorite brunch meal that you've had? Oh, I mean, I go to Fancy Plants every fucking week, and I always get the breakfast arancini. Is it arancini or arancini? Oh, I'm not sure. I go back and forth because I'm insecure about how I pronounce it. <laughs> but yeah, that's I've gotten that like six times. Okay, okay. <laughs> that's your favorite one? That's my favorite one. Great, great. Um, Fancy Plants is a vegan cafe restaurant in Lincoln Park here in Chicago. I love that you've made this the Sarah, Sarah podcast. <laughs> well, the listeners need to know, if you haven't been to Fancy Plants yet, you absolutely have to go. It is yeah. all plant-based. It's absolutely delicious. It's your fucking wake-up call. Um, my last question for you. <laughs> is there any topic that you thought you wanted to do a podcast episode on, started researching, and then just completely abandoned ship. Absolutely. Uh, speech and debate. I wanted to do an episode on the National Speech and Debate Association. Oh. And then it just wasn't interesting enough. Okay, okay. What does it? What does a topic have to do to pass the interesting test? That's a very subjective question. I have very specific taste, right? But it has to be something that was company-wide. Like, the scandal has to be something wrong with the company. Like, the Bumblebee tuna episode I just did. There was, like, one random, one-off, very tragic and gruesome death that was a direct result of them not following OSHA standards. Yep. And so, were it to be a company like Lululemon, where, like, one employee had murdered another employee, like, that's not Lululemon's fault. It just, like, happened at a Lululemon employee to employee. Mm-hmm. So that does not... I guess interesting is a dark word to describe it. So I'm not describing that as interesting, but like when it comes to Lululemon, that is not something I would include in the story because like that is not relevant to the company. And so it has to be something that like is a company wide problem that is, 
I don't know, uh, just fucked up. Okay. <laughs> Businesses are fucked up. For sure. All right. So analyzing like systemic issues with companies that are also interesting. Got it. Got it. Okay. I lied. I actually do have one more <laughs> question for you. Sarah, we have to talk about the fucking musical. No, it's the last one. It's the last <laughs> okay, one. Fine. Okay, listeners, if you're not familiar, Christian has recently become TikTok famous. <laughs> uh, she posts about her podcast content on TikTok. Christian, what is your favorite TikTok comment that you have ever gotten? <laughs> uh, somebody commented on my Salvation Army TikTok, show this to mom and tag their sibling. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Show this to mom. Hello. Hello. You are my favorite person. <laughs> All right. Now we can talk about musicals. Okay. To be clear, Sarah asked me none of these questions in advance. The fact that I had answers at the ready is a testament to how well I know my own podcast and how narcissistic I am that like I read my own TikTok comments, despite the fact that there are thousands of them all the time. <laughs> all right. In 2019, an adaptation of the 1988 film Beetlejuice hit Broadway. This is unrelated to Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, but this is a charming anecdote to start it off. The music and lyrics to the Beetlejuice musical were by Eddie Perfect, and by all accounts, the musical was fine, right? Like, it is serviceable. Alex Brightman, who plays the re- lead role of Beetlejuice, he's, he does a good job, and it's fun sets, costumes, lights, whatever. But again, by no measure is, like, a, a musical with staying power. However, in 2019, Presley Ryan, the understudy for Lydia Dietz, began posting TikToks about the backstage of the show, all the characters in costumes, and generally making it out like Beetlejuice was this fun, cool thing for the kids. She got hundreds of thousands of followers on TikTok, and it, beca- it blew up. Like, the hashtag Beetlejuice on TikTok has billions of views, with a B. Uh... And so when the show closed in 2020, as every other show did, it was disappointing for the fan community. But because it had had such strong word of mouth, it came back. It was set to close June 2020 for The Music Man, closed because of COVID. And then because of such fan fervor uh, online and demands to bring it back, it came back in April of 2022 unexpectedly. And there's obviously other factors at play other than social media that brought Beetlejuice the musical back, but it is in no small part thanks to its community. There is no story that is uh, more the opposite of that than the story of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. It's the best musical ever written that was, for a number of reasons, set up to fail, and then social media was the final like driving force that ultimately got it fucking closed. So that's what I wanted to talk about today. A failed business that is a musical, and it's my favorite musical ever written. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready? I'm so ready. All right. All right. All right. All right. So to me, this story is more is like an, an elaborate wrestling move. If you're watching a, a do you look at it like a game of a match, a wrestling match, one of the characters might like, you know, hit you in the leg and then your leg hurts the rest of the match. And then they hit you in the arm and then like, that's a problem. And then after you've run around and like all your stamina is gone, they finally like hit you with the final move. That's uh, kind of the vibe of the story. Like it's a lot of different pieces that aren't chronological, but then it all adds up. And mm-hmm, then the, like mm-hmm. a stake being driven into a vampire's heart. Like it just. OK, OK. So. Let's talk about the writer of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, Dave Malloy, who I'm obsessed with. <laughs> You're uh, familiar. Picture this. You graduate from Ohio University in the late 90s. You spend the early 2000s doing original musicals to modest success, a few Obie Awards, etc., etc. Dave Malloy and Rachel Chavkin have been friends for years. You know who Rachel Chavkin is? Of course I do. Why do you know Rachel Chavkin? Because she is, I think, one of the best directors in theater right now. Um can I go off on a tangent about her? Go for it. Okay. It's the Sarah Whitcomb podcast now. <laughs> like, you do whatever you fucking want. All right. So I have this little crush on her because what I love most about her is she talks a lot about the athleticism of theater oh. um, and how theater should feel like a sporting event. Like, you 
should be staging it and having that same level of excitement that you have with a sporting event and like movement within theater feels like a sporting event. Um, and I, of course, am both a theater gay and a sports gay. Um, <laughs> that is a devastating double combo. So the fact that she talks about the athleticism and the arts. Uh, the fact that you managed to be cool despite that. Really? Oh, you think I'm cool? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that's a compliment that only you would give. <laughs> I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, that's really all I had to say. Um, I appreciate her approach to the arts, but I understand that that's not what this podcast about is about. So I mean, ahead. I love Rachel Chafkin, too. And the reason I mention her is because she will later go on to direct Natasha Pierre in The Great Common of 1812. But they've been friends since like 2010. Oh, have they been working together since then? Yes, they she directed his musical Three Pianos. Uh, three Pianos is like literally three pianos on a stage. And it's three dudes with a shit ton of red wine, like taking you through the history of like some classical music. Like they're pretending to be in a dive bar sometimes. It's like this really hazy, very Dave Malloy work. And this is the best review I've ever heard of any of Dave Malloy's work, written by Jonathan Clark for Dig Boston. Quote, full disclosure, I'm a little drunk. I was going to wait until I sobered up to write this review, but then I thought, fuck it. <laughs> Being slightly tipsy is the perfect state in which to give my impression of three pianos. Three Pianos is a joyous celebration of music, funny, delightful, and infectious. But it's also more than that. It's also a meditation on the often futile nature of art and the hardships of love and romance. I really hope you go see Three Pianos. This part classical music performance, part history lesson, part play is a special thing. The kind of rarity that while you're watching it, you realize you won't come across again. Aww. <laughs> what a sickening review. I love oh, it. Oh, that's sweet. I think that really sums up like what Dave Malloy is all about, too. Uh, mm -hmm. That's definitely the vibe. Dave Malloy loves old shit. Some of his previous work includes Clown Bible, which is literally about the Bible, but it's clowns. Uh, Beowulf, A Thousand Years of Baggage. Preludes, about com composer Sergei Rachmaninoff. And a recent rendition of Moby Dick. Like, this guy's going to read an old book and then make it into a fucking musical. Sure, That's sure. why I love this guy. He has a very distinct style that's very unique and charming. And he once told the New York Times, quote, There's a perverse interest in picking texts that have a reputation of being boring. Well, no. War and Peace is an amazing book, and here's all the reasons why. It's a trashy romance novel. It's not this unapproachable academic piece. Genius. I love his ethos. <laughs> <laughs> if I may be indulgent, I want to describe the vibe of his musicals a little more. The Beowulf one was set in, like, a wrestling ring and had, like, accordions and, like, elaborate Viking costumes. And he was in it because uh, he's in, like, a lot of his work because <clears throat> he slays. Uh, and it's very opulent. A lot of what he does is quite opulent. Even if it's like a stripped down set, you still get the feeling that you're watching something regal and ethereal. And that's what I wanted to say. So anyways, he's working on a cruise ship in the early 2000s and he's reading Tolstoy's War and Peace. There's this 70-ish page sliver that he's obsessed with. It's when Pierre Bezukhov spends mo like this 70-page sliver trying desperately not to kill himself. Like he's just so depressed and he's having such a terrible time. And Dave Malloy, being <laughs> a worker on a cruise ship, was like, I relate to that. <laughs> okay. So he comes back, and he's the artist-in-residence somewhere. And they were like, oh, do you have any ideas for musicals, artist-in-residence that we pay for? And he was like, half-heartedly, oh, what if we did this, like, war and peace thing? I'm kind of interested in that. And to his, quote, horror, they loved it. <laughs> they were like, okay, do it. So eventually the Ars Nova commissions a full production of it, which is also directed by Rachel Chafkin, like, in its earliest form. Let's talk about Broadway's industry. Let's pause there. Talk about Broadway's oh, industry. Oh, here we go, baby. <laughs> Slay. Are, are you familiar? Did you learn a lot about, like, Broadway Broadway uh, doing your BFA? I did, yes. Yeah? I feel like you're better able to advise on the industry as a whole better than I am. Because most of what I know is, like, about Dave Malloy. Well, I would love for you to explain that this 
what this section is about, and I will add my uh, cynical commentary. (laughs) Something I genuinely did not know before researching this, which is really embarrassing because I love musicals, is that Broadway has nothing to do with the street cutting diagonally through the city. It's a designation codified in union contracts that encompasses all theaters with 500 or more seats in midtown Manhattan. Off-Broadway refers to shows in Manhattan that have 100 to 499 seats. Off-Off-Broadway has fewer than 100. I thought that was just like a dumb thing that people said about like Off-Broadway, like, oh, it's close to Broadway, but it's not actually on Broadway. But no, it's like the seats of the house. Yeah. I did not realize that. Mm -hmm. The aforementioned Broadway theaters have been monopolized by the following companies. The Schubert, which is the one that oversaw the Great Comet, uh, the Nederlander, and the uh, Jujamson theaters. Jujamson. That's how you say it. Jujamson. Have you heard of those? Mm Mm-hmm. I knew nothing about this. This was, like, mind-blowing to me. Okay. Do you have opinions? Nope. Keep going. Keep going. Generally, Broadway is a very speculative industry with little legal recourse if you're an investor and something goes terribly wrong with your play, which most of the time it does. It's difficult to recoup your investment on ticket sales. Uh, The overhead costs of, like, running a show are fucking massive. And generally, when people go to see a musical, I feel like they don't understand the scope of how much went into it, like, who's getting paid to do what. Like, the rent on a theater is like $20,000 a week to pay from everything from like toilet paper to the hungover teenager who's pouring you wine, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, it's super expensive. And it's one of those um, investor industries that's sort of a gamble and the rich people investing in it know that. Um, Is that what they like about it? Well, so there's a lot of different estimates, but some say that only 20% of Broadway shows will actually make money and become profitable for investors. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So as a rich, you know, like philanthropist that is cultured, you want that to be you um, mm. and you hope that that's you. Um, it's also a good way to like, quote unquote, diversify your investments. That um, was what I was going to ask, because while I was reading this, I was like, yeah, a lot of people lose money in Broadway. My main question was like, why invest in the first place? Like they have no emotional attachment to most of the shows they invest in, I can only imagine. Mm -hmm. So, like, what is the benefit? Is it the cultural clout of, like, you're an investor on this really woke show? Like, you invested in a strange loop and now you're woke. Yeah. You know what? I can't say because I'm not a rich philanthropist, (laughs) um, but I can speculate. And shows that make a lot of money make a lot of money. Uh Um, I also do know that these production companies that are – Uh, you know, putting on these Broadway shows, many of them have consistent pools of investors that they'll go to and try to get money from. Mm. And those are people that, you know, are part of the arts, like to invest in the arts. There are usually a lot of regulations around who can even invest. So you probably do not have a, I don't think it's net worth, it's like something else Mm -hmm. um, that qualifies you to be an investor in this, but you would not meet the qualifications. Me personally? Um, Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Are you fucking kidding me? It's like investing in anything else, right? Like you invest in a share, a piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. You meet with this production company and they get you to, they sort of sell you the business of it, show you the numbers, and you hope that you're going to make your money back and not just make your money back, but... Make uh, a killing. Make a freaking killing. <laughs> like you hope that this show is the next Wicked or whatever. Or Hamilton or whatever, yeah. Yep, and then you get to go tell all your friends about it. Let's talk about the main producers of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. Okay. Janet and Howard Kagan. Do you know who uh-huh. these people are? Uh-huh. Uh, they're the principal producers of this show. They formerly had Wall Street jobs. One of them worked at a hedge fund. One of them at an investment banking firm. They started throwing money at the wall for some Broadway shows. Like, they got their hat in the ring fairly recently, within the last two decades or so. And they then saw an off-Broadway production of On the Town, which is a musical. The two decide to fund that shit all the way to Broadway, providing $2 million of the $8.5 million for the show, like, themselves. Why? 
Howard Kagan said of the show, quote, what jumped out at me was that it was a fun show about sex, and we don't really have many funny, sexy musicals. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, maybe this says a lot about me, but I think a lot of musicals are funny and sexy. (laughs) Listen, I'm on the same page as you, but can you imagine being the power of being the leads in that show and knowing that, like, your sexy performance turned a guy on so much he invested two million of his own dollars to watch you do it again? We love to think that we are rational, logical creatures, but at the end, it's all about our emotions and being horny. Yeah. (laughs) So... Howard and Janet's collective boner over on the town, ta- or uh, what was it called? On the town, uh, funds that shit all the way to Broadway, where it doesn't do very well because no. that's on the town. Nobody wants to see that. Uh, and they get attached to Natasha Pierre in the Great Comet of 1812 and are maybe the worst people to be doing that. They don't have a great reputation in the business for being creative problem solvers because they both came from Wall Street. They're just used to throwing money at a problem until it goes away. Mm-hmm. And they, they're going to come up a lot as the reason why this musical fails so hard. They okay. do such a terrible job. And are they some of the main, how much money did they put into this? They're the two main producers. Uh, okay. There's $14 million total dollars that are invested into this show. I, don't okay. think I, have the, I think I wrote it down later, but I don't have it right now in front of me because okay. I don't have it offhand. The Kagans, uh, one of their first big public missteps with this show is that it had gone from the Ars Nova all the way to Broadway. And it had a few like runs in between at different theaters. But since the Ars Nova was the original one that had contracted the musical, they requested that all the playbills say the Ars Nova production of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 because it was their original thing. They're a small theater. Mm-hmm. It would be sickening if that was on all the playbills and so people could like check out this small theater once it's gone to Broadway. The Kagans simply don't acknowledge it in any way. Um, the Ars Nova took it all the way to the New York Supreme Court to like, because it was like a contra- in their contract. Per Playbill.com, quote, after weeks of negotiations, Ars Nova filed a lawsuit demanding that the commercial producers Howard and Janet Kagan adhere to a contract that requires to requires them to build the shows as the Ars Nova production of that that that. When the show started previews, billing materials omitted the words production of and simply listed the Ars Nova last among 38 other above the title producers in the playbill. <laughs> Insult to injury. Like, it was just bottom of the barrel, the smallest text on the screen. It was settled out of court for terms that were not made available to us, but it was a very big and public misstep. Like, a lot of people knew about this thing that was happening. Mm-hmm. And the Kagans just, like, did not handle it well. They're bad at interviewing. <laughs> like, so that was a, a, a misstep that was ultimately able to be overcome. But I think it uh, lays out the groundwork for how they handle problems, which is, first of all, they don't communicate anything in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then they don't handle it well when it goes wrong. So let's talk about the actual content of the show. It ran on Broadway from November 2016 to September of 2017. And initially, it was supposed to run at something like $800,000 a week. Like, it was that was supposed to be, like, the cost of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's talk about, like, the scale of it. Because it was scaled up so fucking much from its original run. The first run at the Ars Nova... Um, the place that commissioned it. It had like dinner and vodka. It was really small. It was like a 99 seat theater. They had like 10 chandeliers and 59 paintings. It was so opulent. When it lands at the Imperial Theater, it has 1,200 seats, 31 chandeliers, 414 paintings. The amount of performers went from 16 to 43, which is a huge, huge step up because they just keep mm-hmm. adding members to the ensemble. It's like a whole thing. God, this musical is so fucking good. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> Anyways. The show, the costumes, the everything is scaled the fuck up to get to Broadway. And they redid the Imperial Theater. Like, it went under construction just to accommodate the show. 
Quote, the Imperial is being rejiggered to preserve the immersive feel. A couple hundred people will be seated on the stage. New internal staircases will permit performers to move between the orchestra and the mezzanine. There's going to be side tables and lamps and egg shakers interspersed among the seats, along with shaking platforms to allow for the elevated action by actors. So that is the actual, like, thing of the show. It is growing and growing and... (laughs) As we'll see, it's already going over budget. Like mm-hmm. the original thing projected for its Imperial Theater run turns out to not be true. So they're at all. pouring more money into it. Absolutely, that's okay. exactly what happens. And in businessy terms, basically that means the more money you put in, the more it's got to make until you mm-hmm. make a cent off of that. And generally, please correct me if I'm wrong. Broadway shows don't typically recoup 100 percent of the investment until like a year of running. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are different estimates, but it it takes time. It takes time. It usually, t- like, at least a year. If you're, like, Hamilton, it's going to take something like... I think Hamilton did it in the summer because, like, the tickets are fucking expensive and everyone wanted to see it. Mm-hmm. But most shows are not Hamilton, so most shows take a, quite a bit longer. Uh, also, since we're talking about the content of the show, I only mention this because it's going to be relevant later, but this show is about rust- Russian aristocrats in the 1800s, but it's also one of the most diverse shows on Broadway. Rachel Chafkin especially is a champion of casting, like, not just white people to do stuff. The role of Natasha is played by Danae Benton, who is black. One of her understudies, Shoba Narayan, who, when she would step in, she's like the first South Asian woman to be doing this in like 10 years to be like a leading lady on Broadway. Um, and the other understudy for Natasha is Lauren Zakin, who came in fourth on Legally Blonde, The Search for Elle Woods. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that is unrelated, but I, that's the best show ever made. Yeah, we love that reality TV show. Sarah and I watched it, it, it like in its entirety in one night. Yep, yep, and no regrets. No regrets. It's for free on YouTube. Legally Blonde, the search for Elle Woods. When they, sorry, I'm going to put down my shit. When Laura Bell Bundy stopped being Elle Woods on Broadway, instead of just casting a new woman, they made a reality show to find the new Elle Woods. My God, it is excellent television. They have girls, like, on bikes singing the harmonies to Oh My God, You Guys. It is just the greatest thing ever made. Anyways. The cast, ensemble, understudies are very much not just a group of white people, which, again, I only mention because it's going to be very relevant later. So, back to the content. Um, The show itself, it follows two people, Natasha and Pierre. Natasha is a young girl going through her first big romantic disaster, and Pierre, again, is just desperately trying not to commit suicide. That's the entire musical, but it's like, I I can't even describe to you how much I love this thing. It's so, so good. Uh, It very much needs to be seen, you know? It's a musical that demands to be seen. How are you doing so far? I'm loving it. All right, great. So it makes it to Broadway, and people are loving it. Uh, <laughs> before it had made it to Broadway. Wait, can, can we pause, and can you tell me about why people are loving it? You talked about the opulence. Can you sing a little bit of it for me, maybe? That, that is the meanest thing you have ever done to me, ever, is ask me to sing on my podcast. Just, just a little. Just do an impression of what every single song sounds like. <laughs> okay, this is what every Dave Malloy song sounds like. It's like, I can't feel my pain when I never go to the moon. It's like a bunch of like up and down. <laughs> yes. like. Yes. <laughs> it's just sounds gorgeous opulent sounds but it's just sounds yeah, it's just sounds. where's the melody we don't know no <laughs> he just writes down notes and praise yes yes and it always but, works out gorgeously also josh groban saw it when it was in the meatpacking district they had built their own tent in the meatpacking district to do like a production of it after the ars nova and josh groban fucking loved it and begged to be in it <laughs> Okay, Josh Groban has taste. Josh Groban has taste, and Josh Groban uh, was cast to play the lead role of Pierre, who, importantly, I wouldn't mention any of this if it didn't come up later, needs to play the accordion and the piano. That's because when Dave Malloy was in high school, he learned how to play the accordion and the piano, and he originated the role of Pierre because he's just always in his own shit. He also played the accordion and the piano in the Beowulf musical that he was in. Whatever. 
Josh Groban, who was on tour for like a year before stepping into the role as Pierre, had time to learn the accordion. All of this will be relevant later. I'm just going to leave it at that. He had time to learn how to play the accordion. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. Since Josh Groban is killing it, uh, Danae Benton is killing it, everyone in the ensemble is killing it, the show is so fun to watch because, like, the audience is immersed the entire time. There's 40 actors running around. There's a moment that Rachel Chavkin mentions, like, she watched the show just, like, randomly. Uh, and two actors, she didn't know this happened in the show, like, came and did, like, two cocaine lines off her table and then, like, started fucking somewhere. <laughs> like, it's a crazy show like that where, like, they invite you to come in and, like, drink. And there's a part where uh, someone needs to deliver a letter to somebody else and they hand it to a person in the audience and explain nothing. And they vamp, like, waiting for the person in the audience to deliver the letter, which is on the other side of the stage. God, it's so good. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Like, opulent, messy chaos. Yeah. Which does not translate well to an audio recording because you just can't see how awesome it is. And <laughs> Dave Malloy is so funny. There's a part where they're at the opera and it's supposed to be like horrifying and confusing. So they have uh, Gelsey Bell doing like <laughs> terrifying vocal experimentation that's like sh- shrieking. Mm-hmm. Which when you're playing this on a, you know, the aux cord in your car, like your friends are going to fucking hate you. <laughs> okay. Yes. We were driving back from, <laughs> oh my God, where? From Ohio when I had the, um, when my stomach was all fucked up. Yes. And we had to pay pit stop in like Fishers, Indiana. So we're driving (laughs) back from Indiana and my back hurts. Christian has a messed up stomach. I'm like, let's play some good sing-along musical theater tunes, as I do, because I'm shameless about being a little musical nerd. Um, And Christian in the passenger seat puts on um, Great Comet, which Listen, gorgeous musical, I love it. It is not sing along in the car music. <laughs> There's one song where this old ass man is like, I've aged so very much. And he's like, Where are my glasses? He's screaming. There's seven discordant cellos, like just shrieking. <laughs> it's oh, so good. And so here I am thinking she's going to stick on, like, Take Me or Leave Me. I'm going to sing. We're going to both distract each other from <laughs> this long, boring drive and the pain that we're both in in our bodies. No, I don't want to. I was like, This calms me. <laughs> <laughs> and it did. It was calming her. <laughs> and so, you know, again, Josh Groban's killing it. The musical is fun. People are loving it. It's nominated for 12 Tony Awards. And this is a very big part of the story. Picture this. You've spent the last half decade pouring your heart and soul into this unconventional, bombastic, heartfelt Broadway musical. You're nominated for an industry-leading 12 Tony Awards. The weather is nice. You get all dressed up. You kiss your spouse who is stuck with you through thick and thin. You settle into your seat at the 2017 Tony Awards. The lights come up. Post-allegations, Kevin Spacey is the host. (laughs) He sings a pained off-key number that, while featuring references to the content of the awards, is mostly about the year's other commercial darling, Dear Evan Hansen. You sit and you watch goddamn near every award you are nominated for go to Benjamin Platt's father's vanity project about a kid who fakes writing letters to his bully who recently committed suicide. This musical is riddled riddled with homophobic jokes and tired tropes, but Ben Platt is apparently awesome in it because he cries a lot. You win two of your your potential 12 Tony Awards for scenic and lighting design, and then you go home. Can you picture it? Congratulations. You just took a dive into the mind of Dave Malloy, 2017. (laughs) (laughs) Whew. We could do a whole other episode on how busted um, the Tony Awards and really any award show is, but you just <laughs> viscerally made me feel something like that. Did I? Oh, God. Isn't that just terrible? <laughs> just awful. Honestly, I would drink myself to sleep. <laughs> Dave Muller absolutely does. <laughs> this man loved whiskey, which he's just like me, for real. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's well known in the industry that if you don't slam ass at the Tony Awards, you experience a pretty significant slump in the upcoming June and July months. People generally don't go to live indoor things in June and July. So if you're not, you know, racking up the Tony Award nominee blank on your posters, then, you know, people are just less interested. And it's already kind of a hard sell for the electropop opera that is set in 1800s aristocratic Russia. Sure. Because I hear that and I'm like, that sounds fucking boring. But unfortunately, it's the best musical I've ever written. Anyway. Ugh. I just had so much snot that, like, was coming out of my mouth. <laughs> so, you're already knocking at death's door, but luckily Josh Groban is a moneymaker. Well, he was a moneymaker. Let's talk about the Piers. It's time to talk about the Piers of it all. The Piers. Okay, let's go. It had been planned for a long time that Josh Groban would depart the production shortly after the Tony Awards. I think they all thought the Tonys would go better and that Josh's leaving could be managed. And the plan was to insert Okirite Onadawan, who played Hercules Mulligan and James Madison in the original cast of Hamilton. That's not just a random girl fact, it's absolutely relevant. The role of Pierre notably requires the actor to learn to play the piano and the accordion. Josh had all that time on his tour to learn how to do it. (laughs) And of his transition into the role, Oak Oak told NPR, he was told not to worry. The accordion would be easy to learn. Quote, everyone's like, no, 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 it's super simple, Anadawan says in disbelief. Josh was like, oh, I had it with me on tour, and Malloy had been playing it since high school. I'm like, why did everyone say I'll be fine? <laughs> so this poor man for two months has to learn. He only gets two months to learn how to play the accordion and the piano. <laughs> and he's got to descend multiple flights of stairs while playing the accordion, too, which is oh, no. already so difficult. Despite that, he's objectively fucking awesome as Pierre. I've seen a bootleg. He fucking smashed it. He was okay. so good. Uh, unfortunately, though, his fan base of mostly, like, he, him, Thomas Jefferson, Hamilton stands. Mm-hmm. Do you want to explain he, him, Thomas Jefferson on the podcast, or should I keep that one to myself? That's for the TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Look up um, Hatsune Miku uh, Thomas Jefferson if you want to get any idea of what I'm talking about. I'll probably put it on the Instagram. Uh, anyways, his fan base of, like, you know, 13-year-olds mostly. I mean, other people obviously like him, but I think people thought he would have a bigger selling power like among Broadway ticket buyers, which is not necessarily true of the cast of Hamilton. Sure, because when you cast, you're placing bets on how commercially viable a human is, which is fucked up, but that's the game. It's the game. And so they thought he was going to sell a lot more tickets. They also bring in Ingrid Michaelson during his run to play the role of Sonia, and they kicked out (sighs) Britton Ashford for it, uh, because Britton Ashford, to me, is a somebody, but to everybody else is a nobody. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, So that's the second week of July. Uh, and Ingrid Michaelson is famous, but she was not necessarily commercially successful either because she's pretty niche, I would say. Yeah. I, I know who Ingrid Michaelson is, but I don't think other people do. And you know because of me. Yeah. There's like one in ten lesbians that like her and <laughs> the rest of the world doesn't know who she is. Yeah. And like <laughs> depressed teenagers enjoy Ingrid Michaelson. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So ticket sales, despite Michaelson's alleged fame, do not increase. At this point, Oak has been in the show for two weeks. And then, seemingly without talking to fucking anybody involved, Howard Kagan announces that Mandy Patinkin is going to be making his Broadway re-debut as Pierre. He hasn't been on Broadway in like 20 years. And everyone loves Mandy Patinkin. I love Mandy Patinkin. Here's the, re- here's the following statement that Kagan releases, again, seemingly without talking to anybody about it. Quote, This continues our show's remarkable history of having great actors and singers see the show as audience members, only to tell us that they're inspired to join the cast. Whenever possible, we will accommodate them, as we did here with Mandy Patinkin and his Homeland TV schedule. Oak, who was scheduled to appear as Pierre for this period, graciously agreed to make room for Mandy, and we sincerely hope that Oak will return to us in the fall or winter. He is a terrific Pierre. 
So again, this is two weeks into Oak's contract out of the, I think he was only supposed to be in there for like six weeks, but still, that's like quite early to be announcing that he is already stepping down to, quote, make room for Mandy Patinkin. Mm -hmm. Which importantly, Oak is black and Patinkin is white. Uh, Which, that combined with the make room comment did not go very well on social media. Um, People go fucking nuts over this statement because it seems like Oak was not told that this statement was going to come out or did not read it. So he was like, releases a statement being like, I'm really heartbroken to like be leaving this role. It sucks, but that's, it is what it is. It wasn't like, fuck, great comment. It was just like, yeah, that's what it is. Disappointing, but that's it. Importantly, there were a lot of very valid things to be said about the situation. Like it is fucked up that they had to replace him with a more commercially viable actor. It's a fucked up business and it's optically very bad. That said, of all the valid criticisms, it was also heightened by a lot of, like, he, him, Thomas Jefferson, Hamilton stands, being like, this is a disaster, fuck this show, fuck everything about it, right? Um, One day after the statement comes out, Dave Malloy very characteristically tweets the following. Love at Oak Smash, that's Oak's uh, Twitter. Love comments, love fans, vultures of capitalism, gross and inevitable, muddles of internet, toxic and beautiful, back to whale. Who tweeted that? Dave Malloy. (laughs) He tweets this tweet that makes no fucking sense. Uh, which does not make anything any better. He's not necessarily being canceled over this, but he's not helping. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Two days after the announcement came out, Mandy Patinkin, seeing the waters around him, drops out of the show. He's kind of known for just exiting projects. His agent has to be a miracle worker, but he, like, literally dips, citing the fact that he didn't know he was replacing Oak in the show. The producers didn't tell him. Whether or not that's true, it's what the canon of truth is now. Mm -hmm. Um... But given what Howard and Janet have done in the past, I find it very believable that they maybe didn't let him know. Um, Mm -hmm. So in response, Great Comet releases this statement, quote, As part of our sincere efforts to keep Comet running for the benefit of its cast, creative crew, team, investors, and everybody else, it continues on the next page, but my finger got sticky, we arranged for Mandy Patinkin to play Pierre. However, we had the wrong impression of how Oak felt about the casting announcement and how it would be received by members of the theater community, which we appreciate is deeply invested in the success of actors of color, as are we, and to whom we are grateful for bringing this to our attention. We regret our mistake deeply and wish to express our apologies to everybody who felt hurt and betrayed by these actions. In the statement, they use Mandy Patinkin's full name and Oak's nickname, uh, which also does not really sit right with people, so then things just get even worse. Um... There is no winning. The social media cancellation was like the final pile driver wrestling move to knock out this musical because it had already been going over budget. The Tony Awards were a disaster. Ticket sales were already slumping. And then this cancellation just like drove it home. Oak does his final performance like the day after Charlottesville. Things are just not going well for anything ever. A dude named Scott comes in for two weeks before Dave Malloy steps back in to close out the role on September 3rd, 2017. Uh, and that is like the end of the musical's run on Broadway. How are mm-hmm. you? You're giving, you're giving me uh, eyebrows. What are you thinking? No, I'm just listening. I'm enthralled with this. So that is, like, I have like three more pages of content, so I'm not saying this is the end of the podcast, but that is the end of the musical on Broadway. How, uh, tell me how, work through our feelings. <laughs> um... You know, I want to say I'm surprised, but I'm not. I also mm. knew about all of this. Um, <laughs> I, but I, I guess my main thing is, right, we, I don't want to, what's the word I'm looking for, disregard, throw away um, the feelings of what you call he, him, Thomas Jefferson stands or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Um, or these young people that were mm-hmm. um, upset about the situation. I think something very real about Broadway as an industry and as the market is um, some of your spokespeople and like consumers of the market 
our young people, our teenagers, our people who are um, also engaging in internet discourse because it's not a vacuum, right? Like they yeah. have their own lives and feelings and opinions. Um, and so unfortunately, again, as a business, like you need to understand that that's part of your whole business ecosystem. And the Kagans mm. fucked up God, and they did fucked not. Up so bad. They placed their bets in all the wrong places all the time. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to disregard the feelings or emotions of he, him, Thomas Jefferson stands. I think the comment was more to say people online who are anonymous don't necessarily realize their cultural clout, especially when they're all put together. Just like they have the power to raise up a musical like Beetlejuice, they also have the power to take down a musical. Mm-hmm. Like, if everyone is saying it's canceled because of, like, anonymous teenagers online then it's canceled. Like, that actually has a real impact on, like, ticket sales. Which, again, I'm not saying that these kids are wrong or whatever, but they're, they can certainly amplify uh, or exacerbate, maybe is the better word, mm-hmm. um, a very real issue. Yeah, no. And it's, I think it's, um, there's such a disconnect there, right? Because it's people in the industry, right, and working at these businesses also don't understand that that that's part of what's influencing ticket sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they still look at it as like free press or mm. general sentiment toward their brand, toward their show. Uh, in, for example, in B two B businesses, they call it slay. <laughs> they call it the dark funnel because the, this idea is that you don't see it, right? Like it's this secret funnel. Conversations that happen on Facebook, on oh. Reddit posts or whatever, like it's all the dark funnel that influences buyer choices and influences the way that we move in the market, which to me, right, it's not dark at all. It's just a, a different way of going about things that mm. a lot of people in the industry have not caught up with. I feel like dark is trying to describe like unquantifiable. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like, you can't quantify cultural capital or, you know, word of mouth. Right, like it's a void. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Damn. That was very businessy. I'm <laughs> glad that you're bringing the business to this episode, because it's been a lot of me being like, I fucking love this musical. I, I can bring more of the BFA if you want. I'm, no, keep the B2B, keep, bring the BFA, do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> I am H2L, here to listen. There's this podcast called The O. Henry Report that's commissioned by Broadway World, and they did this, like, awesome dissection on Natasha Peer and the Great Comet of 1812. And so this is where a lot of the following information is going to come from. Like, it's a very by-the-numbers thing, so if you want to listen to that, like, I highly recommend it. It's only on Apple Podcasts, though. It's not on Spotify. Investors, in theory, should have seen a 78% return on investment based on the numbers that were projected, like, in the budget, yep. um, given the show's runtime. Like, not even just overall, but, like, given the fact that it ran from November to September, they should have seen a 78% return on investment. They only received 15% of what they put in, which is a massive discrepancy. 15% of the $14 million, they made $2 million back. Uh, their major question is, why? <laughs> why? How could things go that wrong? There's typically discrepancies, but that's quite disco- that's the, quite the disconnect. O'Henry Report discover- discovered, they uh, mentioned, that the running costs had to have been over a million dollars per week. The investors assumed it was going to be 800000 800, per week. Daniel Curry advised also that there's an extra there's extra costs to be incurred when it comes to, like, Tony rehearsals or Josh Groban had to be, like, really gruff for the part and maybe ask for more money, that sort of thing. Like... He's damaging his his instrument to play the role of the gruff Pierre. Mm-hmm. There's like little things like that that are just one-offs that add up significantly over time, especially in such an opulent, bombastic musical. Uh, 
And this is something I didn't know about the business. The general partner is allowed to adjust the weekly budget of the show, which is a very common caveat, like in investor contracts or whatever. It seems like the communication is not a key aspect of how the Kagans operate, and it's easy to assume like something like this got away. So the investors call for an audit of the show. They're so fucking pissed that they want to audit the Kagans. And ultimately, the audit, like, from what I can read, I don't think there's any like lawsuits or anything or any allegations of fraud. But this is the, like, the conclusion everyone comes to. Quote, Maybe they made some bad decisions along the way, but there's nothing illegal about screwing a show up. It happens all the time in this business, which is kind of what they're the just did. bad at business. They're just bad at business, which is not illegal. They're just terrible. Just at it. busted. So, when Dave Malloy and Rachel Chavkin say something like, "We want to add three extra actors because this part of the mezzanine, like nobody gets there," instead of coming up with a creative solution of like maybe you put a mirror there, which is a bad at solution, but you know, mm-hmm. like a creative solution like that, they're like, "Okay, hire the three actors, throw more money at it." Mm-hmm. You know what I and mean? And to be really clear, right? Like this is not Dave Malloy and Rachel Chavkin no. fucking up their jobs. That's not their job. Their job is to be like, "We need three actors to do this thing to make the show the best it can be." And then mm-hmm. Howard and Janet's job is to be like, "Well, we don't have the money for that. How can we come to a compromise?" Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is also kind of part of why the musical was so fucking good because Rachel and Dave got to do whatever they wanted, kind of. Sure, <laughs> That's sure. not verified. Like, they've never said something like that. But one can only imagine this going this over budget. They got a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. And you can tell in the bootlegs, there's this one bootleg online that's a collection of, like, all different angles of bootlegs and someone edited it together <gasps> like a movie. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> okay, maybe I should watch it tonight. You should. It's so good. Um, anyways. Yeah, it seems like the Kagans really had a major hand in taking down this musical themselves, despite the fact that their literal only job was to bring it up. Great Comet did a production in Japan in 2019 and Korea in 2021. There's some clips on YouTube of that, and it's fucking awesome. But in April 2022, so just a few months ago, Dave Malloy filed a petition in the New York County Supreme Court asking a judge to appoint an arbitrator to settle his dispute with Howard Kagan. Apparently, the Kagans simply haven't paid Malloy for any of the international productions. He's owed, quote, hundreds of thousands of dollars for, like, all the stuff they've been doing with Great Comet worldwide. Um, And Malloy's alma mater, uh, it's either OU or OSU. No, it's OU. Recently did a production of Great Comet, and with the return of live theater, I'm sure Dave wants to settle the royalties dispute before it goes nationwide, because people are going to want to do Great Comet, you know? Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe that. I had not heard anything of this lawsuit, so... No, me either. And I, um... I feel like every time I get on the internet, though, there is a new lawsuit happening in theater. Like, (laughs) some new, someone suing someone else. And it makes me wonder, um, how much of this is happening all the time that we just don't know? (laughs) Yeah. Literally. Yeah. I think about that constantly. I'm like, there's so much news that I'm not aware of, Mm -hmm. especially in the theater world, where I, like, really care. Uh Kagan has this to say, quote, the show's an ongoing business and we believe it can succeed in the long run. Which is very optimistic. I love that for him. That's very optimistic. <laughs> Sounds like, um, oh my God, what's that lady's name who faked her deep voice? Oh, uh, Elizabeth Holmes. Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> very Elizabeth Holmes. Very, yeah, it was very... <laughs> The fallout of this show is that the best musical of, like, the last century just fell out of the sky. It's such a bummer, um, but I'm sure there's a pro shot of it somewhere because there's, you know, pro shots included in the the bootleg that's online. Uh, Yeah, I can't recommend this musical enough. I guess this back page I had is just fully blank. (laughs) But, yeah, uh, that is the story of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. I struggle. I've thought about what I wanted to say about this for a long time, and I'm not sure how to accurately articulate my thoughts. But it is such a shame that so many actors 
uh, in a show that is celebrated for its diversity, lost out on their job in large part because of like a diversity mishandling at the hands of the Kagans, you know? Uh, because if both of the actors were the same race, this probably would not be the same conversation. Uh, like the, the peers that were switching out, which is just such a shame that like so many people lost out on a job because of that. Right. Yep. Yep. There were a ton of people employed by that that mm-hmm. suffered because of um, bad management. Yeah. And I think people are quick to say, like, it's social media's fault for everyone reacting so strong, which is not what I'm saying. And I hope that that's not how I'm being construed. Like, it is a bad decision that was, you know, amplified on social media, which then ultimately led to the collapse of the show. But that's not social media's fault. Like, they made the fucking bad decision. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's terrible. Yeah. It, it depresses me. <laughs> it No, it is. It's, it's incredibly depressing. Um, and it makes me think a lot about how all of this just being a business and like a fucking gamble. Mm. Uh, I think it's a very uh, interesting industry because when it's for profit, right, your actors are not only your product, but they're your employees. Mm-hmm. I think whenever you are turning people into both a product and a laborer, um, mm. you end up in this really morally iffy place. And on top Ooh. of that, put the fact that the Kagans are bad business people. <laughs> it's just this hot mess. It's a hot mess. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure it's very sad for all of the people that were employed for it and involved. Mm-hmm. But Rachel Chavkin, Dave Malloy, and Mimi Lian, especially the scenic designer of okay. Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, uh, I feel like deserve a lot of flowers for the work that they did. Yeah. Mimi Lian especially, like, she, I think, was the only one who had actually been on Broadway before the show opened. Like, Rachel Chavkin hadn't, Dave Malloy hadn't, most of the actors hadn't. Sure. Uh, so I, I had failed to shout out Mimi Lian, and I wanted to bring her back up because she's fucking awesome. Uh, yeah, I feel like it's so interesting what you said about this, the actors being a product and an employee. Like, Yeah, I mean, that's how they're treated. Yeah, and it, it, it ignited a lot of thoughts in my mind, abstract thoughts, <laughs> about the state of the entertainment industry and how to properly treat people going forward, especially when that is the reality that we're living in. Like, that is how it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is how it, it is. It is how it is. Wow, this was very fascinating, especially because I remember being... I remember learning about it as it was happening. Yeah. Um, I remember the make room stuff. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. And just being on social media during that time and talking to people working in the arts during that time. Um, So it was a fascinating experience for me. You were in college during that time, right? You're getting your BFA? I think I was out of it by then. I don't know. It was 2017. Oh, I would have been in college then. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I was in college. Um, But... Yeah, no, it's interesting to have it now we're this many years away from it that there's enough that you can research, come up with, mm-hmm. um, look back on as sort of a retrospective on it. Yeah, which was not available at the time, especially when you've got like a firestorm of people just like giving their opinion on it. Which, sure. again, that's not the, it's what social media is. Sure. I'm uh, still trying to figure out what was going on. Mm-hmm. Well, Rachel Chafkin, her career continues. God. Um, we love Rachel with Chafkin. With Hadestown, yeah. <laughs> Hadestown is an awesome musical, which mm-hmm. is still running. We, that, it, it slays. Uh, I look forward to seeing the regional productions of Natasha Pierre, The Great Comet of 1812. Uh, who did you think you would be cast as if you were in that musical? Do you know enough about it to make a, an assertion on that? I don't think so. Who would you be cast as? I would be cast as uh, Mary, the plain sister who has to deal with the old man. And really? Like, you wouldn't be Pierre? No, I would not be Pierre. I don't know. I just sometimes <laughs> assume that you would be the main character. <laughs> and you didn't say Natasha? Okay, well. 
You're like, mm, you don't have the range for Natasha. But you could be Pierre. <laughs> <laughs> Are you just saying that because I could learn how to play the accordion? If you were in Legally Blonde, who would you be? Mm. I would be one of the sorority girls. Being like, oh my god, you rock. Oh, that was a great impression. But that's how they sound. If you were in SpongeBob, who'd you be? I'd be SpongeBob. That one, I'm, I'm confident. Yeah, I would you be cast would be in SpongeBob. SpongeBob. You would be SpongeBob. Do you think you could cast in SpongeBob? <laughs> um, I think they could cast me as. This is coming from someone who's never seen SpongeBob. Sandy. Oh, I've seen the musical. I've just never seen actual SpongeBob. <laughs> that's a brave thing to assert on the podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry. I have to admit it to a new person like every month, and <laughs> <laughs> I'm losing friends because of it. <laughs> That's very unfortunate. Uh, I guess we'll, we'll do a SpongeBob bitch tonight after you watch the, the Great Comet bootlegs. Yep, yep. All right, any final thoughts on the matter? we got to get out of here. No, uh, this, was, this was a wild ride start to finish, so thank you for blessing us with yet Aww. another well-researched episode. Oh, stop that. That is so nice of you. <laughs> uh, so that's been Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. If Hell you, yeah. If you like this, you can follow me on social media. Um, don't follow me on TikTok, though. <laughs> it's not worth no, it. No, follow her on TikTok. Um, I have enough of those. <laughs> if you ever want to know which episode you should listen to next, her TikToks tend to be, um, like, lighter little dives into oh. different aspects of the topics of her episodes. So if one of them sparks your interest, you will probably know that that's a, an episode you're going to love and should start with next. Aww. What a great selling of my TikTok. Thank you. Uh, also, donate to the Patreon. Um, don't follow Sarah on social media. She doesn't want that. Absolutely do not. Um, <laughs> but give Christian money on the Patreon. Um, each podcast episode, she will never say this herself, um, but takes I hours and hours of research Um probably 20 plus hours goes into a single episode if not more um and then she spends her sundays recording this uh supported by the lincoln lodge so we love the lincoln lodge please give your resources to them Aww, what a great sell i should be on every episode just to say that <laughs> at the end all right well thanks for listening to the podcast that has been it uh have a have a blessed day and stream great comment <laughs> bye everyone bye